you have your Bibles with you again, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you're a guest with us, we've been working verse by verse through this book, and we've come to the beginning of chapter 2, and we're going to look at the first five verses together this morning. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1259. I'm going to speak for a few minutes on this subject today, waiting for Christ's return. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Word of God says. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ... And are being gathered together to him. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? The first 12 verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 point to future world events as they relate to God's ultimate plan of redemption. This is one of the most difficult passages in all of Paul's writings. And part of the difficulty lies in the fact that we do not possess the complete teaching that Paul had given this newly formed church. In these verses, Paul is not introducing new information. He is merely reminding the Thessalonians of what he already taught them while he was with them when he planted their church. Commentator and scholar Leon Morris offers this warning as we study this passage of Scripture. He writes, This passage is probably the most obscure and difficult in the whole of the Pauline writings, and the many gaps in our knowledge have given rise to extravagant speculations. We do not possess the key to everything said here, and it is well accordingly to maintain some reserve in our interpretations, end quote. And essentially what he is reminding us of as we approach this passage of Scripture is to not veer far away from the text, but to allow the text to give us insight into what Paul is teaching this church about the second coming of Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote this section of his letter to address the Thessalonians' loss of hope and joy through their confusion about end-time events. Someone in the Thessalonian church, either by a false letter 
or by false teaching, was claiming that the day of the Lord and the return of Jesus Christ had already taken place. And to make matters worse, this letter or teaching had been ascribed as coming from the Apostle Paul himself. Therefore, the Thessalonians were confused and they were in discouragement and despair thinking that they had missed the return of Christ. This young church was full of fear and this fear was was taking its toll on this body of believers. They were faced with the fact that if Christ had already returned and they missed it, there was no hope for the end of their suffering. There was no hope for relief from their pain and their heartache. Now I'll remind all of us this morning that it is important that we remember in this passage that Paul is less interested in satisfying our prophetic questions and filling in our charts of prophecy. And he is more concerned with bringing pastoral encouragement, pastoral instruction, and pastoral comfort to the struggling and confused Thessalonian church. Therefore, he limits in this passage his instruction to what is absolutely essential and necessary to correct the error that has robbed this church of their joy, their hope, and their peace. As a result, you may leave church today, you may leave church next week, and you may leave church the week after that with more questions than you have answers. And so you should just get comfortable with that. Because Warren Wiersbe reminds us helpfully that the purpose of Bible prophecy is not for you and I to make a calendar so we can check it off. The purpose for Bible prophecy is so that our character will be built in Christ. Now, Paul has mentioned over and over Christ's return. His first mention of it was in the context of the death of believers, instructing them not to grieve as others who have no hope in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he taught them that Christ will return like a thief in a night. And that the second coming of Christ will be unexpected by the world, but it should be anticipated by believers. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Paul encouraged the persecuted believers to trust in Christ and to trust in his return. Because when he returns, he will repay affliction with those who have afflicted them and grant these suffering believers relief. All through his writings concerning the second coming of Christ, Paul insisted that the return of Christ is the ringing and the sounding of good news for his people and the pronouncement of doom and destruction for the evil of the world. Therefore, Paul wrote this passage of Scripture to assure his readers and to assure us that they had not missed out and we have not missed out on Christ's coming and the consummate consummation of salvation. 
In these verses, Paul gives four warnings to the Thessalonians and to us as we wait for the return of Christ. The first warning is found in verse number one, where he warns against discouragement. And this is what he writes. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers. The very first word of verse 1 makes a transition from Paul's prayer in light of Christ's return in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, to his continued instruction of Christ's return in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, Paul wrote about the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ in connection with punishing those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. But here, at the beginning of chapter 2, while Paul's subject is still the revelation and the unveiling and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is connected, if you look carefully at verse 1, with the gathering of his people to him. Of all of the aspects of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul began to write and correct and encourage and counsel this struggling church, he focused specifically on the gathering together of believers to the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of experiencing relief, the Thessalonians were suffering severe persecution. Their painful experience, along with false teaching, confused them and caused them to believe that they had missed out on the coming of the Lord. Their theological error robbed them of hope and of joy and of peace. And as a result, they were completely discouraged in their souls. And so Paul wrote, and he warned them of the danger of their discouragement as they waited for Christ's return. Now you'll notice carefully in verse number one that the two nouns or the two emphasis of this verse, the word coming and the phrase being gathered together are connected together in the language and they are defined and depicted for us as one event. That the coming of Christ and the gathering of believers together is connected. It's the gathering that Paul had already spoken of to the Thessalonian believers in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 to 17. And this is what he wrote. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, will be gathered together with Christ in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. It's as if he was saying to the Thessalonian believers and to you and me, why are you discouraged as you're waiting for the return of Christ? There's hope in the return of Christ if you know him as your Lord and Savior. 
He is going to gather you with all of the saints to experience fullness of joy in His presence forever. So why would you be discouraged in your souls? You'll notice in verse 1 that Paul ended this verse by gently humbling Correcting and calling these confused believers to listen to him and to comprehend what he was teaching them and reminding them of. And this is what I would remind you of this morning. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is always to be associated with you being gathered together with him. And if you have the future hope of being gathered together with the Lord Jesus Christ, why would you be discouraged in your soul now, no matter what you are going through and no matter what is happening around you? The hope of the return of Christ, the hope of being gathered to him, overpowers anything in this world that can bring discouragement to us. It is true, living and lasting hope. And so Paul warned this struggling church, just as he is warning you and me this morning, against discouragement. It means you have to ask yourself this morning, if you're allowing the pain and the suffering of your life, if you're allowing the news of the world, if you're allowing the toxic tone of the culture that we're living in to rob you of your hope and of your joy and of your peace in Christ. It is quite possible that many of us have allowed all of these things to discourage us and rob us of the hope and the joy and the peace that we have in Christ in His return. Oh friends, this passage is a warning to every single one of us to guard our souls against discouragement in these days. There is hope in Jesus Christ. So Paul not only warns us against discouragement, in verse number 2, he also warns us against despair. Look at what he writes. Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Paul is writing not only to encourage, but to warn them against despair. This church had become unsettled and alarmed by rumors concerning the Lord's return. Notice carefully in verse 2 the powerful language that Paul uses. He uses the word shaken in the ESV. And this word is used throughout the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 7, the word is used to describe a reed that is blown about in the wind. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 29, the word is used of the shaking of the powers of heaven in the end times. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 31, it is used of the shaking of the building when the Holy Spirit descended. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 26, the word is used of the shaking of the prison at Philippi during the earthquake. 
And in Acts chapter 17 and verse 13, the word is used of the agitating of the crowds at Berea by the unbelieving Jews. This word shaken means to waver, to totter, to move about to and fro. I would, I would describe it this way, that you're not grounded, you're not firm. You don't have a strong foundation upon which you're resting and building your life on. The rumors that were circulating through this church had shaken this church to its core. Notice how Paul described this shaking. He said it happened quickly. This wasn't over a long period of time and duration that the news that came to this church that they had possibly missed the second coming of Christ quickly shook them. This word quickly conveys the idea of a sudden shock. It, it could literally be translated this way. They were easily unsettled. Easily unsettled. I want you to grab hold of that phrase. Because, friends, that doesn't just describe the Thessalonian church. If we're honest this morning, it describes you and me on a regular basis. When a difficult word, a difficult announcement, a difficult news comes our way, how quickly are we shaken? And notice where this shaking took place in their minds. They, they lost all rational thinking. They were shaken in what they were thinking and believing. They were shaken to the core of their minds. And here's what's so amazing about it. Look at the text. What shook them? They had been shaken up by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter that claimed to have come from Paul and his companions that the day of the Lord had already come. Now here's what you have to understand. And I'm going to show you in the text in a minute. When Paul planted this church, he poured his life into them. And he taught them important truths that would ground them and give them a strong foundation. And in spite of having all of this foundation in their lives, all it took was one little letter, one little report to completely undo them and cause them to lose their bearings and as a result look at what the text says they were alarmed the word alarmed means they were disturbed they were frightened they were full of panic and here's how the language is used in the text it doesn't mean that they were alarmed at the first news and the first word that came upon them it means that they continued to remain alarmed. They continued to live in fear. They continued to live in panic and anxiety. They were shaken to their core. Shaken in mind, full of fear and panic. The truth that God had poured into their lives through the Apostle Paul was quickly forgotten and it was replaced with fear and anxiety and worry and panic and stress. Jesus, listen carefully to what I'm about to say to you. He knew 
that things like this would happen to his followers. And before he went to the cross, he used the exact same word that Paul used in this passage to warn his disciples. He used the word alarmed to warn them of the danger of being quickly shaken and driven by fear with the events that surrounded them. Listen to what he said to him in Mark chapter 13 and verse 7. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. It's a command. Do not be alarmed, followers of Jesus. And can I just put in parentheses here this morning, how relevant is your Bible? Have you been watching and listening to the news and rumors of war? You have to ask yourself, are the rumors of war and the rising gas prices and all of the woes and the dooms that all of the commentators make a living off of scaring everybody to death? Have they scared you and alarmed you and shaken you? Well, do you know what Jesus would say to you and me this morning? Do not be alarmed. Why? Why should I not be alarmed in this world that I'm living in that is full of dangers and despair and discouragement? Why? Listen to what Jesus said. This must take place. But the end is not yet. So here's how I would translate that for you this morning. You can turn on your news and you can listen to everything that is being said and you can allow it to shake you in your mind and in your heart and in your soul. You can allow it to undo your bearings and your foundation and you can wobble and waver all over the place and be full of fear and panic. But listen to me. Jesus said there's not one single thing you can do about it because all of it has to take place and the end is not yet and so the solution is not to be shaken in your mind and your heart and your soul the solution is not to be alarmed the solution is to rest in the hope that you have in Jesus Christ that we're one step closer to him not despair, not despair, not easily shaken. Jesus isn't shaken. He's not seated in heaven at the right hand of the throne of the Father, making intercession for his people right this very moment, saying, God the Father, what are we going to do about Russia? He has Putin in the palm of his hand moving him as a chess piece around his chessboard of the world. Your problem is your God's not big enough. He's not sovereign enough. And what Jesus warned his disciples about, Paul is warning this church about and he's warning you and me about don't be so hasty to base your conclusions on your experience your experience will deceive you base 
your conclusions on truth. Base them on the word of God. And this church was shaken loose from the anchor of truth. And they were adrift on the sea of despair. And this should remind every single one of us in this room this morning to beware of false doctrine. Because it is quickly given and quickly received, but its effects linger for a long time. And so here's how I would help us apply this point to not be full of despair. Listen to what 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1 says. John says, beloved, so he's writing to believers, he's writing to you and me. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. You should test every single thing that you hear through the lens of the word of God. That is the filtering system that differentiates between truth and error. You test the spirits to see if they're true and they're from God. This world is full of false teachers. This world is full of false preachers. Or you say, there's nothing like that could happen in Wheeling. Are you kidding me? Really? I guarantee you there's false teachers in Wheeling. They're everywhere. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14. If you needed encouragement from the word of God to be grounded and firm and stable in your faith in these days in which we're living, there's no better verse that I can point you to than this one. Ephesians 4.14 So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And notice how he began the verse, that you would no longer be children being tossed to and fro. Why was he saying that? Because the believers that he was writing to were being tossed to and fro. They weren't grounded. And in the overall context of this verse, it's in the context of which he says that he gives pastors and teachers, he gives evangelists to the church to build up the body of Christ so that the church would be equipped so that they wouldn't be blown about by every wind and wave of doctrine. You see, it's the leaders of the church's responsibility to equip you and to pour into you, and it's your responsibility to be equipped. So that you would be grounded and have a foundation that would stabilize you in this world that we're living in. And I'm telling you, dear friend, if you ever needed stability, it's now. It's now. You must be grounded in the Word. And here's what I've found. When you're grounded in the Word, you will be less likely to be full of despair. Final verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Listen to what Paul promises these Corinthian believers, and it's a promise for you and me if we know Christ. 
He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I'm going to say it to you again in case you missed it. Did you did you hear what Paul said? That God will be faithful to sustain you to the end. He will be faithful to do it. If you are one of his children, he will never let you go. Even when you feel like everything is falling apart around you and you're barely holding on. In reality, it's not you holding on. It's God holding on to you. And he'll be faithful to sustain you to the very end, no matter what happens. And listen to what he said. And at the end, when the end comes, God is so faithful that he will put you before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ as a believer, guiltless, before his throne. That's how faithful he'll be in preserving you. So, so my, my question is simple. Why are you full of despair? What greater hope could you need than that? That God will sustain you and present you guiltless, faultless before his throne? Not because you're guiltless, but because Jesus Christ was guiltless for you. Not because you're faultless, but because Jesus Christ was faultless for you. He'll sustain you and present you before his throne. Why? Why would you be in despair? Well, Paul not only warns against discouragement and despair in verses 3 and 4, he warns against deception. He warns against deception. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. They were discouraged. They were full of despair. And they were deceived. And their deceit led them to anxiety and fear. They panicked when they heard that they missed the day of the Lord Notice what Paul says to them in verse 3. Let no one. It's a strong command on the part of the Apostle Paul. It could literally be translated this way. Do not let anyone by any means or any method lead you astray in any way. Paul is really emphasizing that there was a deliberate attempt in the church to lead people astray. And the word deceive is a completed word. It means completion, completely deceived. And the scheme worked. The church was deceived. And there was no excuse for the Thessalonians to give prey to this deception. They should have realized and been able to discern that Paul would not have contradicted all of his teaching to them in a simple letter. And it's a reminder once again, friends, The truth is not determined by our emotions. Truth is not determined by our circumstances. Truth is determined by Scripture. And as believers, we must allow biblical truth and theology. Listen, 
We must allow biblical truth and theology to rise above our every feeling and our every circumstance. And this is the danger. This is the danger that we're all tempted with. When we're facing a struggle or a difficulty in life, it is our natural tendency to elevate our emotion over the truth of God's Word. And we would rather focus on how we feel than what God says. And what I've found in life is that when you're struggling in these areas, if you will focus on what God says in His Word, if you will focus on truth, eventually your feelings and your emotions will catch up and get in line with the truth. But the opposite is true. If you focus on your feelings and your emotions and you make your decisions on how you feel, truth will never catch up. To how you feel. You will go from one bad decision to the next, to the next, to the next, all based on how you feel instead of what God says. And so Paul warns them. He warns them of the danger of their feelings and their emotions. He warns them of the danger of their circumstances to try to point them back to the truth so that they would be grounded And it's interesting to note in this passage and throughout the Bible that warnings concerning deception are almost always connected to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 13 and verse 5, Jesus warned of people who would deceive many by claiming to be Christ. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 26, he warned that people would come and say, I've seen Jesus in this place. I've seen Jesus in that place. And you read a verse like that and you think, is that really true? Could people really fall prey to that and believe that? And and I've always wondered that about that verse in Matthew chapter 24. Could people really be that easily deceived? And then I went to Nepal on my first mission trip. And I began to talk to first-generation Christians who were influenced and affected by Korean missionaries from South Korea who had come to Nepal and were telling all of these newly born-again Christians that Jesus had appeared as a woman in Nepal. And the very first question and answer session I had with these pastors They just asked over and over again, is this true? Did Jesus really appear in Nepal? That's how relevant your Bible is, friends. The people will say this and people will believe it. And Paul was teaching this church and he's teaching you and me, we don't need another opinion. What we need is the truth. And so he gives them the truth. And this is what he does in verses 3 and 4. Now look carefully at your Bible Because this is worth connecting the dots and coming to church for today. He tells them two things that must take place before Jesus comes again. Two things. Okay, now he's not being exhaustive here. But he's telling them, until these two things happen, Jesus is not going to come. So what are they? Well, here's the first one. It's rebellion. Do you see it in verse 3? The rebellion will come first before Jesus does. The word rebellion is where we get our word in English, apostasy. It refers to turning away from a former position or the abandonment of prior loyalties. 
It could be used of a political rebellion, but in the Bible it's used to describe turning away from true faith. Paul used the same word in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 saying that in the latter times some will depart, some will fall away, some will rebel from the faith and embrace false doctrines and idolatry. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12, the writer of Hebrews uses the word in the context of vigilance. And he says, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away or to rebel from the living God. And so apostasy is defined as an evil heart that embraces unbelief after it has professed faith in God. And Paul says this rebellion, this apostasy must come first. Now, I want you to notice your Bible carefully because history is full of apostasy. The last two years of our life has been full of apostasy. Well-known leaders who've uh, denied the faith, who have denied true Christian doctrine, who've fallen morally. Our world is filled with apostasy. So, so how do we know? Well, when you look at your Bible carefully, it becomes obvious that Paul had a certain apostasy in mind. There's a simple little word in your Bible that if you don't read it carefully, you'll miss it. It's the word before the word rebellion. Do you see it? The rebellion. The rebellion. It is a specific apostasy event that Paul has in mind. He's not talking about the general, general trend and spread of apostasy on the global scale. He is highlighting a precise, identifiable act of apostasy. And he's teaching the Thessalonians and he's teaching you and me that this act will be so big, it will be so magnificent, it will be so blasphemous that its immediate impact on the world will be epic, that it will dramatically change the world and bring terrifying global repercussions in an instant. A specific event. Now notice the second thing that he says must take place. The man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, must come. And understanding who this person is is key to understanding what Paul is talking about in this rebellion and in this apostasy. Because he connects the rebellion with the man of lawlessness. Do you see it in the text? He connects them together. They're, they're separate and yet the same. This title, Man of Lawlessness, is just one of the many titles that are given to this man in Scripture. And each title reveals a different part of his character. And all of the titles can be summed up in one title. And here's the title. He's the Antichrist. He's the Antichrist. Paul doesn't use the term Antichrist in this letter. Only John does in the book of First John, but whom John identifies as the Antichrist, Paul designates as the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction. And here's what you need to understand about this man that he is describing. The prefix anti before the word Christ has two meanings. It means against Christ 
and it means instead of Christ. It means that Satan doesn't only oppose Christ, but he wants to replace Christ, and he wants to be worshipped and obeyed instead of Christ. And so there's coming a time in the future when Satan will unleash the Antichrist on the world to be worshipped. And when the world worships the Antichrist, they'll really be worshipping Satan. He is Satan's emissary. He's the man of lawlessness. He's in complete opposition to God. He's the one who embodies the highest form of man's rebellion against God. He is the son of destruction. It means that his destiny is to be destroyed. Do you know this uh, title, son of destruction, is only used one other time in Scripture? Do you know who it's used of? Judas. Judas was referred to as the son of destruction in John 17, 12. John MacArthur made a powerful observation between Judas being the son of destruction and the Antichrist being the son of destruction. I found it very helpful. This is what he says. As monstrous as Judas's apostasy was, it pales in comparison to the act of the future apostasy the Antichrist will commit. Judas betrayed the Son of God. Antichrist will proclaim himself to be God. Judas desecrated the temple with money he received for betraying Christ. Antichrist will desecrate the temple by committing the abomination of desolation. Judas, apparently without influencing others, went astray. A tragic, solitary disaster. The Antichrist will lead the world astray and lead the world into destruction. And notice what the text says about him. He must be revealed. He'll be revealed. It means at some point in this life, the Antichrist will be alive. And he'll be living in the world. And there will come a day when it is time for the rebellion. And when that rebellion takes place, the Antichrist will come out of the shadows. He will be propped up. He will lead the entire world astray. He will, as I believe Paul is talking about in verse 4, go into a temple that has been built in Jerusalem in the place where the presence of God was supposed to dwell. He will take up residence and sit on a throne and he will demand a one world government and he will demand a one world religion and he will demand that everyone bow to him. And whoever bows to him will really be bowing to Satan. And it doesn't matter what religion exists at that time, whether it's true or whether it's false. He will decimate all religions and make his own religion. And it will be a religion of Satan worship. It will be demonic. And he will deceive the nations. Jesus predicted it. He said in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15, it will be the abomination of desolation. This event on a worldwide scale will be an utter abomination in God's eyes. And it will trigger his unrelenting wrath Injustice on sin and evil in 
the world. And notice what the text says. This Antichrist will stand up in that moment and say, I am God. Can you think of a more blasphemous statement to be uttered than that? And that's what he will utter. And the world will be deceived. And Paul is teaching this church these truths so they would realize Christ hasn't come yet. There's still hope. You need to get your foundation. You need to quit being shaken. You need to quit being alarmed. Here's what I want you to know this morning, friends. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have confessed and repented of your sin and asked Christ to be your Savior and to forgive you, if you're united in Jesus Christ, there is no reason for you to fear. The return of Christ means that you will be gathered with Christ in all of his fullness and glory, you will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye because you will see him as he is. Therefore, you should find hope and encouragement and comfort in these truths. But listen, listen to your pastor. I can't plead with you any harder physically, emotionally, than what I pleaded with you the last two weeks, and this now makes the third week. I don't think I can plead any harder than what I'm pleading with you. If you don't know Christ, if you've never recognized that you were born in sin, and that you live in sin, and that your desire is sin, and that your sin has separated you from God, if you've never recognized your sin and admitted your sin, and recognize that God loved you so much when you couldn't go to Him in your sin. He came to you in His Son and then He sent His Son to live a life of perfection that you could never live. He sent His Son to die on the cross the death that you deserve to die for your sin. He sent His Son to rise from the grave to defeat your sin and to defeat the devil and to defeat death. And He sent His Son to ascend back to heaven and pray for you while you're living on this earth. And he sent his son just so he will come back in the same manner that he came the first time. To redeem his people. And if you've never recognized that God has done that for you through his son Jesus. And you've never confessed your sin and said God I am a sinner. What you say about me is true. And you've never repented. You've never turned away from your sin. And turned to Christ for forgiveness, if you've never done that, listen carefully. You should be afraid. You should be afraid. Because this life is not all there is. I've shown you in the text of Scripture what's coming. And there's going to come a day when it'll be too late. And here's what's going to happen on that day. Are you listening to me, friend? I'm trying to speak as clear and plain as I possibly can. Are you listening? On that day, you're going to remember the service. You're going to remember what was taught. 
you're going to remember that an opportunity was given for you to respond to Jesus. And you're going to remember that you refused. And there'll be no hope for you. You will fall into the hands of what Jonathan Edwards described as an angry God for sin. But today, today, if you hear his voice, you can fall into the hands of a loving God who's full of grace and mercy, who punished his son for your sin so that you could be forgiven and set free. And it's as simple as you recognizing your sin, confessing your sin to God, turning away from your sin, and trusting Jesus and what he did on the cross for you to find your acceptance with God. Friends, it really is that simple. And I would submit to you that the reason why you're afraid now is because you don't know Christ. And if you're afraid now with everything that's going on around us, can you imagine how afraid you're going to be on that day? You say, oh, pastor, <laughs> you, you sound like those old-fashioned preachers. You're trying to scare everybody into heaven. No, I'm not. Because here's what I believe about that. I don't think you can scare somebody into heaven. I think if you respond because you're afraid instead of because you want Jesus, you haven't responded properly. It's not about getting fire insurance. It's not about escaping judgment. It's about wanting Jesus. It's about seeing everything he's done and everything that's going to happen in this world and saying, I want Jesus. I want to be united with Jesus. I believe what Jesus did for me, and I want that. That's what it's about. A lot of people have been scared to make a decision. And do you know what my experience has been as a pastor? Those who have been scared to make a decision, the decision doesn't last. That's why you're all over the map. Because it hasn't taken root in your life. Because you didn't want Jesus. You just didn't want to go to hell. And those are two different things. And I'm trying to tell you the truth this morning. You need Jesus. All of us need Jesus. I need Jesus. And we need to want Jesus. Not just to escape judgment. So do you want him? Do you want him? He's done everything. All you have to do is respond. And Christian, this passage just says to us, why would we be shaken? Don't be discouraged. Don't be in despair. Don't be deceived. Don't disregard the word. There's hope in Christ. Let's pray.